Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and to encourage community. I stress encourage community because I believe that human beings are basically friendly tribal animals who enjoy being with one another and cooperating with one another. We like doing things together. We like eating together. We like playing ball together. We like meeting in all kinds of social groups. And we like collaborating. We are really tribal animals. At the very same time, there exists within us a very small group who are quite different. These people are avaricious, greedy, and they are dominant predators. They would rule us. They have a very different attitude about life here on the planet. And we must be ever mindful not to allow these people to control as they have in many countries around the world. We must stay aware. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm privileged to have a colleague, a dear friend, and an internationally prominent rocket scientist, Creon Levitt. Creon spent a good part of his career as a rocket scientist with NASA, and more recently, he is Director of Research and Development with Planet Labs. Some of you may know about Planet Labs, which has sent up small satellites that Creon may tell you about that are circling the Earth and taking photographs of everything that's going on on the surface of the Earth in real time, all the time. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Creon. It's great to be here and great to see your face, Richard. Creon, what's been occupying this amazing mind of yours most in recent days? But first, I want to correct one or two things that you said. I am not really a rocket scientist. I was an applied physicist at NASA for over 30 years, and I did some stuff on rockets, but I did a lot of stuff on other things like satellites and telescopes and chemistry and aerodynamics, aeronautics. So yeah, let's just correct that. Um, that's enough. I just wanted to, to make that clear. I'm more of a generalist than a rocket scientist, although I've, I've done a fair bit of, of propulsion and rocketry stuff. Um, what's been occupying my mind in recent days? Well, I mean, there was a thing that I am looking forward to us talking about later on in this discussion, which is a particular idea, not really my idea, but I think it's a very interesting idea. And I think it's relevant to the general topic of mind-body health and also sort of the tech industry or aerospace industry, which I view as part of the tech industry where I operate. And that is that um, it is interesting to me how it seems that psychedelics, which is a common theme in your program, have played a role in the development of uh, science in general, but the tech industry in particular. And I think it's been explored a little bit in one or two books, but I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's perhaps taken as seriously as it might be. I think it's a very interesting question of the relationship between psychedelics and advanced technology 
Uh, so that's one thing that I've been thinking of recently in anticipation of, of doing this program with you. Um, other things that have been occupying my mind recently are, you know, I'm still kind of obsessed about COVID, which I, I have to agree with. Brett Weinstein was the greatest blunder in the history of humanity, but we don't have to get into that because a lot of people are too fatigued on that topic. And <laughs> frankly, I'm too, but nonetheless, it's important enough that I still spend time uh, kind of following the con particularly the sort of um, contrarians on this topic. Um, as you know, I've been here before <laughs> talking with you about this. And then, um, uh, and then the other things that have been occupying my time to some extent are, you know, my, my work uh, involving satellites and satellite design applications of satellite imagery to restoring the earth. I have questions about the satellite imagery re in regard to surveillance. It seems that we all know that there's more and more surveillance going on around the planet all the time. And for the most part, what we run into as ordinary people is surveillance via cameras that are placed in stores, on buildings, in homes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, let me just let me just put a response to that thing, because that I think that's what people traditionally think of when they think of surveillance of ordinary people. However, I actually believe that the surveillance of ordinary people in recent years has been through uh, big tech and government collusion with big tech to um, not only track people's location, but track what they say. And um, and even worse now, it's apparently uh, throttle what they're allowed to say, what American citizens are allowed to say in the open public square. Uh, so I think that surveillance with cameras, you know, yeah, yeah, that'll tell you, you know, if a certain person was here at a certain time. But I'm much more worried about um, thought policing and and um, surveillance of people's uh, constitutional rights to free uh, expression of political ideas and, and um, suppression of that right through surveillance. But anyway, go ahead. Well, please elaborate on the methods that you're aware of for the kind of surveillance that you are concerned about. Educate us about how we are being watched. Well, I mean, you know, if if you spend any time on social media, then in principle, the social media company platform that you're on knows everything you look at. They know everything you say like. They know every comment you make or every post that you make. And this can all be searched for keywords and as well as relationships to other people and what they say. And then, you know, what is done with that information is a whole other uh, subject in and of itself. But, um, but you know, this was sort of initially uh, exposed with Edward Snowden, uh, you know, quite some years ago when he blew the whistle on these secret government programs to uh, basically spy on Americans' uh, phone calls and text messages and emails. And then um, more recently, it's kind of blown up again uh, with these revelations about Twitter and uh, not just uh, not just surveillance, but actual manipulation and restrictions on what many of us think are people's right to express their political opinions in America. So, so what you're saying, if I understand you, and correct me if I don't, is that every time we go on the internet, we're making a record of something about ourselves, which is being recorded and algorithmically watched. Is that correct? 
uh, recorded, yes. Algorithmically watched, I don't think, no. Everything everybody says isn't, isn't algorithmically watched in every way. That would be impossible. But it can be watched and also retroactively uh, filtered. So if someone, in, you know, with the, with the, I wouldn't say authority, with the power, wants to know, you know, what is everything that Creon Levitt has ever said about Russia or psychedelics or you name it, like they can find this. Now, on the other hand, you know, I post this stuff publicly, so I might as well just accept that it's a matter of public uh, record. Now, email is a different matter. It, as you well know, if you send emails uncrypted, which most are, uh, through, say, large email providers like Gmail or, you know, most of the other ones, Hotmail, you know, all of them, like those companies have a record of every email you sent and every email you received and every word of it. And while they're not supposed to, while there's supposed to be limits on what can be done with this, the fact is we all suspect, I think rightly so, that it's mined for advertising information. So there's the whole idea that, you know, people are being watched, you know, so that some company can sell them a car or promote a product. That's a little bit, you know, less uh, ethically problematical than, say, being watched to make sure your politics are correct, whatever that's supposed to mean. What about if two jihadists are sending emails back and forth, planning to bomb a building, and they're using words such as bomb and building and dates? Well, that- I mean, I would, okay, obviously, even if they were two American citizen jihadists, then plotting to bomb a building is is extremely illegal. And so one might argue that uh, existing laws and existing structures to get warrants and things like this can be used and to some extent have been used. Uh, if they're foreign, then it's a different story because one might argue that, you know, First Amendment and stuff like this doesn't apply. Like if we're spying on some foreign actors who are plotting against America or plotting against anything that it's like, well, for whatever, you know, you can question this sort of if this is ethical or not, but they're not extended. They're not supposed to be extended. They're not traditionally extended the same protections to free speech. But as also we know, and I'm no legal scholar, but free speech doesn't actually mean you can say anything you want. What you have, what you, you can't, you know, incite uh, violence. You can't plot crimes. You can't um, take generally illegal actions. Like that speech is not protected. Well, it's not so much the speech isn't protected. It's that the, the action of inciting or planning criminal acts. I mean, that's not protected. That's criminal. So problem, Uh, problem. Question, question, Creon. Um, If, can somebody who really knows what they're doing with a computer hack into just about anybody's email? Uh, Well, that's, it depends what you mean by like just about anybody and who knows what they're doing. I mean, there's different levels, there's different levels of knowing what you're doing. Uh, There's people who specialize in hacking and it might, that just about anybody who specializes in hacking can probably get certain access. Uh, but even there, it really depends on also the precautions that you as a email user take. So, um, yeah, I'm not an expert on this computer security stuff, uh-huh. uh, but um, it seems, frankly, that at least most of the stuff you hear about where there's been big hacks of, say, email and things like that, they tend to be massive. They tend to be like some service, some email service provider that's providing, say, email services or whatever, financial services, all kinds of different things to a you know large population of users. They get hacked and like thousands or hundreds of thousands 
of, of personal informations get leaked all at once. In terms of like someone targeting, say, just you or me and hacking into our laptops, say, or our phones, um, you know, it's most people would say, as I understand it, that if a sophisticated state actor, the U.S., the Russians, wanted to do that to you or me or anybody, they probably could on an individual basis, but um, they'd have to like really want to do it, especially with encrypted messaging services, which more and more people are using. You have to really have large resources. Your average hacker cannot in general. No, but the government could do it. So what that, what that where I'm going with this, Creon, is it means that if governments want to, they can hack into congressmen's emails, senators' emails. Oh, it's totally it's, happened. It's totally happened. It's been documented multiple okay. times. Okay. Let's move on to another topic of, the, of, of interest that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about psychedelics and technology. Okay. Now, I want to say one thing before we enter into this, which I kind of need to do. And Good. Um, that is that uh, I have to say, you know, this whole conversation and all these wacky ideas that I'm floating around with you and we're discussing, they're just my personal uh, opinions of the moment. My mind is always subject to change and they do not reflect anything having to do with my employer or my official position or any of this stuff. This is just me as a private citizen with personal opinions discussing with a friend and colleague, Richard Miller. Understood. Now, on to psychedelics and technology. Okay. What can you tell us? Well, I was remembering when I read that sort of controversial biography of Steve Jobs, Walter Isaacson's biography, and, um, you know, it's a thick book, but one of the things that struck me was how LSD played a role in Steve Jobs' sort of awakening and then his, you know, I'm not saying it was the primary moving force, but it definitely opened his mind and helped him commit to doing something transformative for the benefit of the world. In his case, it was the development of Apple and all that technology. Um, and of course, much of the book is about that story. But he definitely was transformed, awakened, illuminated, inspired, and openly, I believe, from LSD. Um, again, I'm not saying this is like, this explains everything about Steve Jobs, but it's there. It's like, and it's got you, as we know, these, these sort of heroic psychedelic trips that people take can be uh, really important in their future evolution, especially if they stay true to some of the realizations and experiences that they have during the trip, you know, uh, because what really matters is what happens afterwards. But um, but he's not the only one, right? I was right. thinking about it. It's like, I mean, like Elon Musk, for instance, probably, you know, arguably the most important tech entrepreneur since Jobs, perhaps more important. Um, you know, Elon's, it's fairly well known that Elon is psychedelics friendly. In fact, it's fairly well known that a whole, well, not a whole bunch, but a, a substantial minority of billionaire tech CEOs and other important movers and shakers in the tech industry, maybe somewhat more recently, many of them than Jobs, um, you know, they go to Burning Man and they're psychedelics friendly. And I, I know some personally, as do you, we're not going to mention names, uh, but, but, you know, we know that these people are influenced, arguably even enthusiastic about psychedelics, at least at a personal level. And they are, they profoundly changed this world, arguably for the better. Certainly they've made it more interesting <laughs> and um, with their technology. And, uh, and, and then there's this other, well, there's a book about this called What the Dormouse Said, uh, uh, 
gosh, what's the name of the author, Robert Maddock? I think maybe something like that. And um, you might want to get him on the show. But he documents, to some extent, the role of psychedelics in the early tech industry, like the early Silicon Valley. Uh, and then, um, and you know, there's other, there's other ones, even some of the ones from Microsoft, not Bill Gates, but, but some of the early employees. We used to even know one. He used to come to the Friday night dinners, but I think he's passed away. Well, we know that Watson and Crick used uh, psychedelics in their discovery of, uh, of the DNA. I did not know that. And Carl Sagan's widow revealed sure. that he was using psychedelics, but was afraid to talk about it while he was alive. Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, what what do you think these people are gaining from these psychedelics? How oh, are they how are they using them for their betterment? Um, well, do you think these I people, Creon, do you think these people have learned how to focus their mind and their consciousness in order to use the psychedelics in a very intentional way rather than lay back and just let whatever appears on the screen unfold? You know, I don't know the answer to that question because I haven't spent much time talking with them, those who I know about this particular issue, although I've spent a fair bit of time with, with some of them who we both mutually know. Um, but, but I mean, uh, no, I haven't, I haven't dug into it because I recently, I just recently started thinking about it and, and, you know, we've been a little distant now for obvious reasons. It's um, a very important question because we're, we're, we're talking now about a very different use of psychedelics, which is the use of psychedelics for creativity and for functioning on a specific topic of interest, well, namely, okay. right, I, which is very different. Let me give you an example of, of a world famous person just came out and talked about his use of psychedelics, namely the Duke, the Duke of Sussex, Harry Windsor. And uh, he said that he used um, ayahuasca and psilocybin in order to make contact with his emotions that had been suppressed mm. following the death of his mother, which, right. he which he suffered from for many years. So right. in that case, a very prominent, world-famous person is telling us that he's used these substances medicinally. Yes, which is You're, different. Which is very different. You are now bringing to us information about the use of these very same substances for creativity. Well, let me amend that slightly because I don't even know, and I don't remember from the Isaacson book, and uh, I don't know to what extent these people did their psychedelic experiments explicitly because they were looking for a creativity boost or something like that. I think that they may have done them almost just out of curiosity in many cases, but then found a uh, an enhancement to their creativity or their vision or their competence. Um, this leads us into a very interesting aspect, which I presume you've spoken with, with other guests who specialize in it. But that is, as you mentioned, there's kind of two ideas behind the renaissance in psychedelics, uh, if you will. The one idea which is most talked about, of course, is psychedelics as therapeutics, like the one example you chose and many of the people you've had on your show who talk about treating, quote unquote, mental illness with psychedelics and some of the, you know, promise and excitement and great results that they tend to be reporting. What's not so often talked about for various reasons is the idea of psychedelics and their potential benefits in high functioning individuals who do not 
suffer from quote unquote mental illness. And that is less talked about these days for reasons we've discussed. I mean, one thing is some people think it's like a, a bridge too far and like we don't want to we don't want to get everyone who's scared enough about psychedelics in the in the you know muggle world. We don't want to get them um uh you know it's one thing to say we're going to treat veterans who have PTSD. Like who can argue with that? You know, if you're a compassionate person, you're going to probably think that's okay. Now if you start talking about, you know, executives and students and you know just normal people enhancing their mental or abilities, say, their creativity or, or whatever, their competence through psychedelics. Uh, some people, I think, that might not go over so well at the society in our present time. So some people, even though they're excited about that working in the field, don't talk much about that. But what I guess I'm saying is that it appears that there's already documented evidence of this, even if it was accidental. Through There's another book, too. There's another book as well, which relates to this. I didn't know about Watson and Crick. That's amazing news to me. But there's a book called How the Hippies Saved Physics. And it's about the early days of... Um, of sort of the second renaissance in quantum mechanics, which happened with Bell's theorem and the origins of quantum computing and all this stuff. And there was a bunch of physicists, mostly in the Bay Area, who um, got involved to some extent in the psychedelics movement and just the counterculture movement in a way. And again, coincidentally, correlation is not causation, but when they got involved in this sort of, they dropped out of academia, got involved in the counterculture in, in the Bay Area in the 60s and 70s, and then made all these advances in physics, which are really important to this day. And so that book, How the Hippies Saved Physics, you know, it's not exactly the tech industry, although some of it has has relevance decades later to the tech industry because the quantum computing industry is now really hot stuff. But, um, you know, it, this idea that psychedelics may have a, a role in high functioning individuals becoming even more high functioning in certain situations is been fascinating to me recently. And I've been, as I've been thinking about it, I've been noticing more and more uh, alleged examples of this. I agree. And interesting, you talked about these physicists who dropped out of academia and then went on to do very creative things. In my own case, I dropped out of academia. As you know, I was teaching at the University of Michigan and then Stanford, and I took psychedelics while I was there, and it changed the cost of my life. And I believe that what I learned from the psychedelics uh, facilitated my creativity in starting a, a, some pioneering, uh, pioneering chemical dependence program, as well as some pioneering work in psychotherapy. And I attribute a certain amount of that creativity to the psychedelic experience. Another potential example just occurs to me might be Sasha Shulgin. Like he was heavily involved in simultaneously in the creation of new psychedelic compounds, but also in their regular usage. And, you know, one might say he's a great chemical, he's great genius. He was a great genius chemist. I always said my only, I always said Sasha should have won the Nobel Prize. The only question is, should it have been for chemistry or for peace? But, um, <laughs> but uh, Alexander Shulgin uh, may be another example of a person who was a high functioning individual who maybe became even more high functioning in his technical specialty. I have some hesitation about our focusing on, quote, high functioning people because it's it, it 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 could lend itself to a kind of elitism whereby you know the 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 psychedelic enhancements 
are for certain people but not others. I personally believe that the psychedelics have great potential for the average person because if, quote, a high-functioning person, whatever that means, functions even higher, then why shouldn't a ordinary-function person up their game as well as a result of these things? Oh, I agree, and I agree with the concern about elitism or this perceived elitism, but I I was using high-functioning, you know, I mean, I'm treading on your territory here. I thought that it's just like high-functioning as contrast to mental illness. Like, I just mean like, yeah, maybe you want to call it normal functioning, just someone who is, who is, ah. their life is on, their life is like, they're doing okay in their life. They're not suffering mentally or emotionally. Okay. That's what you meant. Thank you. I misunderstood what you meant by high functioning. Fair oh, enough. I, didn't, I, I don't mean like that you have to be the CEO of a tech company. To yeah. It's just, those are the cases that get documented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think what you're talking about, what I'm talking about, and what we have ahead of us is very more refined use of the psychedelics with intention on particular projects. And I have interviewed people. I interviewed an architect who was stuck on a on an architectural problem. And so he took LSD and he went into the experience wanting to delve into the architectural problem. And he was able to solve it while he was under the influence of the LSD, whereas heretofore he was he was stuck. He ran into an obstacle. And, you know, once somebody can do that, it opens up the door for the rest of us, right? Yeah. I mean, to some extent, correct me if I'm wrong, to some degree, for some people at least, this same kind of access to insight or the same kind of uh, ability to get past a blockage, even if it's just like a professional blockage, I don't mean like an emotional health blockage, but like, like the architect example, to some extent, people do this, some people can do this by dreaming or by like, you know, yes. this, like go to sleep, you ask a question while you're going to sleep. Yeah. And, then, and then when you wake up, you might have an answer to the question. Like, okay, you know, that's a definitely, that's like a radical change in your consciousness, but it happens to not be brought on by psychedelics. It's just brought on by the natural diurnal cycle. Yes, definitely. As you're talking, you mentioned several times that we're not going to name certain names. And of course, we're not going to. But the reason we're not going to is that there is fear. Otherwise, there wouldn't be an issue. I mean, if we wanted to talk about somebody famous who we talked to the other day and mentioned the kind of car they drove or the tie they were wearing, that wouldn't be a big deal. But it would be a big deal if we outed them about the use of one of these substances. And that in and of itself needs to be examined. Part of the reason we don't want to out them is because so many of the substances in most of the United States, but not all, fortunately, are illegal. Right. So we'd be outing somebody for doing something illegal, which we certainly don't want to do. On the other hand, there's a fallback position now, because if they were to do these same things in Oakland or Denver, Colorado or Oregon or San Francisco, they wouldn't be doing something illegal, but they might suffer another stigma, right? The stigma of the public's attitude towards somebody who's the head of a major company. Right, right. Exactly, right? Just look at, the, just look at all the trouble Elon Musk got into for smoking a joint on Joe Rogan. You know? Is that right? I, I'm not aware of that. But that's, yeah, I, Now, that's not anybody outing anybody. That's like him, you know, outing himself. Um, yes. But, but, he, uh, but what was the trouble he got? The, the, oh, the no. in, in, investors were as concerned that if he smoked marijuana, he would ruin his company? Well, I don't know. 
Exactly. I mean, of course, there's just, the, you know, there's the news media and the public and they're just always looking for a, a controversy. So there's yes. that. But yes. then it was also, you know, there was this whole thing about, well, you know, he has contrasts with NASA, big ones or SpaceX does. And, you know, they have NASA has rules about drugs and, you know, you know, maybe these contracts were in danger. I think that that's pretty much blown over. Uh, and of course, now he's in even now the controversies surrounding him are are significantly greater, but they're not about uh, they're not about marijuana or any drugs, although people will trot that out if they're willing, if they're trying to, um, uh, you know, say they're trying to criticize Musk's current activities. They'll just be like, well, what do you expect from like a dope smoking weirdo? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Putting NASA in danger and then all this kind of crazy talk, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, another reason that we don't mention it, maybe this is less important than the, than the stigma and the illegality, is that one might argue that these kinds of things are quite personal. Like if you're not going to be open about it, um, you know, taking like your use of psychedelics is kind of a internal, like it's a private matter, arguably, like like sex or, you know, certain financial things like this is not for others to go. It's not polite to go outing people's private activities as long as, you know, if they themselves say it's okay or if they're public about it, that's one thing. But it's not it's like saying what medicines they take or, you know, uh, uh, what, you know, what kind of uh, sexuality turns them on. Like you might know Creon, it, like the business to discuss Creon, it. When I was a, a little boy growing up, people didn't talk when they had cancer. People talked behind other people's backs when somebody had cancer. We have these topics in this country, and I suppose other countries as well, which are considered taboo topics. You know that, I know that, and we all know that. Sex, religion, politics, and money. We don't sit around at the dinner table saying, how was your sex last night? Do anything interesting? Yeah, we right. don't do that, right? We don't lean over to our father in a personal conversation or mother and say, dad, how much money did you make last year? Right? It's very rare. People don't talk that way. Yes. Yeah, do, do you think that's, I mean, are you making a value judgment on that or are you just observing? I'm, make, I'm both observing and I'm making a value judgment. Good for you for picking up the value judgment. The value judgment is that I believe that secrets, for the most part, are ways of holding power over other people. And really, they're also ways of controlling the population in terms of morality. Because well, at, a, wait a at, a, at a very basic level, what is the big deal if we all talked about our sex lives at the dinner table or in public? And, yeah, okay. what, is, and what is the big deal? Explain to me so I can understand about us telling one another how much money we make. Why well, is how much money we make such a big secret? Tell me. Well, these are different, slightly different questions. Let's, I think, though, that there's a few common elements. One is that there's the issue of shame, like that. And again, this is part of the fear that you talk about. Like there's the issue that, you know, we're a puritanical country to some extent and people are ashamed about sex or they're ashamed about um, discussing, uh, you know, controversial topics. Um, and they view them rightly or wrongly as a private matter uh, in many cases. And I know you're a scholar in constitutional philosophy uh, 
enthusiast. And so, you know, there is this issue of the so-called right to privacy. Of course, right to privacy isn't actually mentioned in the Constitution, but freedom from unreasonable search and seizure is, which that's right, interpreted to some extent as a, a right to privacy. Uh, get back to our question of surveillance. No, Creon, I'm not, I'm not saying that we don't have a right to privacy. I'm saying that this puritanical legacy that we've inherited has decided for us which issues are private and which issues are not. Right. And so what we have, another thing that we have that prevents people from talking about this in addition to the puritanical heritage and the potential concomitant issues of or consequential issues of shame is it's a coordination problem. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, it's a problem that if if you start talking about your sex life or I start talking about how much money I make and and it's not societally acceptable, then I get um there are consequences. People will judge me. They will be offended. They'll be uh, shocked. They'll be made uneasy. Uh, if everyone did it all at once, it wouldn't be a big deal. It would just be the new norm. But that requires coordinating everybody to all of a sudden become okay with it, okay with talking about these new topics. And that is a very hard thing to do, like so many other things that we would love to yes. do. Yes, it's called evolution or revolution. And if a certain number of people start talking about these topics, for example, the money, and we reach a, we reach a critical mass, then there'll be a rollover and it'll be acceptable to everybody. But I don't think we're really grappling with the basis for these prohibitions. That flying it under the flag of privacy doesn't really work for me. I mean, what is there that is so private about either how much money I make or who I voted for in the last election uh, or, or what what religion I particularly? Well, look, practice? I think I think that you know this is complicated and it's not really my specialty, so I'm just uh, wrapping here. But it seems to me that first of all, it's fine, arguably, if you have the spine and the stomach for it, it's fine for you to reveal all these things about yourself, your sex life, your financial life, your political life, the life of your internal thoughts and fears, whatever it might be. I mean, uh, should everyone be immediately um, discussing publicly all their discussions with their therapist? I mean, where does it end? Um, and sh should the therapist be discussing it publicly with, with the patient? Because, you know, after all, to not to, to, to be private about it is to be puritanical and fearful. I, I think it's more complicated. It's not just they were puritanical. It's not it's there's also the related matter of societal convention and, uh, you know, go along to get along. And, you know, you might say these are other versions of fear, but then yeah. might they might also say, but some might argue, and I bet I could come up with some arguments to steal man the position, that it's actually good that we don't talk about all this stuff all the time with everybody. Because quite frankly, um, well, you know, you can imagine downsides. If you go told everybody how much money you make, you know, people might decide they can take advantage of you. Some people might be well, like. But that's that's fear. That's fear. OK, look, you said we're just wrapping. Let's move on to another topic. OK, next thing you're going to be asking me about my alcohol consumption, aren't you? No, I will just go on record as saying that I believe that alcohol is a very toxic substance that 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 it's embedded in the culture for thousands of years it's mm. going to be very difficult for us to do anything about it and it's it's having a very deleterious effect on the human condition enough said i'm going to go on to the topic i'm viewing the planet as being in a struggle, a planetary struggle between two groups that are in conflict. One of them I refer to as social Darwinists. These people are basically living a caveman mentality 
namely the biggest and strongest is the boss. In the present case, it's who has the most money is the boss or who has the most political power is the boss. And these people believe that those who have less power or those who have much less, that's where they're supposed to be from a Darwinist position because it's a survival of the fittest, both physiologically and psychologically and behaviorally. And those who aren't as fit will drop to the bottom. And those who are very fit will make it to the top and will become kings and emperors and presidents and so on. And the other people have to look out for themselves. The group that they're in conflict with are a group that I refer to as humanists. This group believes that we're all connected and there's enough to go around and we can make certain, as, a, as, as us, we homo, homo sapiens, we can make certain that everyone is fed, sheltered, educated, and has health care. And that we don't leave people behind. They're all part of the family of humans. And we make sure that everybody floats. And these two groups are, are in conflict on the planet. If the social Darwinists win this struggle, we're going to end up with a world dictatorial situation where we'll have an emperor of the world or a dictator of the world with some kind of quasi uh, a, a parliament or democracy, but it'll basically be a rule and basically the rest of the, the world will be subjects. And if the other group wins, the humanist wins, we're going to have some form of a democratic republic where votes really count and everybody's equal before the law. What do, what do you think? What do you what's your take on what I just said about this conflict? I think I basically agree. I think that there's enough, you know, you, you spoke for about a number of things there and you used a lot of words that I think there's little places along with what you said that I might push back on and give counter arguments. Um, but I basically agree. But, you know, to give you just like one counter argument, I think that we want to be careful about making it a, a dichotomy like this. Like, I think it's more like there's a spectrum or there might even be more than one dimension. There might be like one might say there's the authoritarian versus anti-authoritarian dimension or the democratic versus autocratic dimension. And then there's other dimensions, too, that 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 separate human uh, thinking and separate uh, societal organizations, uh, principles. Now, for instance, this edges into this idea of equality because there's this tension, right, between equality and meritocracy. You've probably heard this spoken about recently. Like if you have them, like some people are just better at certain things. Right. You know, why they're better could be all sorts of reasons. It could be right. better because, they, you know, genetics, it could be upbringing, it could be luck, it could be they use psychedelics, you know, whatever. They're right. better at certain things than other people. Right. Some people are better at basketball. Other people are better at uh, aerospace engineering. You know, other people are better at psychotherapy for whatever reason. And the problem is, is that everybody can't be equal at everything. That's just ridiculous because that's just going to go to the lowest common denominator. Now, that's a very different thing from saying everybody has fundamental divine, if you will, equal rights to basic freedoms. Yes. I mean, I'm totally in favor of that. But I find that, for instance, the left, if you will, carries this too far. They're like, well, that means everyone should end up equally rich and equally degreed from college and equally employed in, you know, whatever job they 
want to be employed in. Really, are people saying that they don't recognize that there's a difference in capacity and cognitive processing, just like there's a difference in who can play basketball better or who can do mechanics and plumbing better? They don't recognize that's ridiculous. You know that. Well, I know it's ridiculous, but nevertheless, I think it's unfortunately become a more and more prevalent attitude in recent years. Not by everybody, but by more and more people. They're like, they're like. I mean, we have to differentiate, Creon, between equal dignity, equal respect, equal kindness, and equal ability to do a particular task. They're very different. Right. Or a lot of times the way, at least those on the sort of some of the sort of intellectual conservatives who I tend to follow, I know you're not quite as fond of them, of them as I am, but like they tend to cast it traditionally for decades and now, you know, more and more strongly distinguishing between equality of opportunity on the one hand, which they all agree is a goal of any compassionate society and equality of outcome, which is something you can never guarantee because people have different skills, abilities and situations. And so the problem is that people are getting this confused. They're getting equality of opportunity confused with equality of outcome. And they're saying, because we don't have equality of outcome in whatever place I choose to look, therefore, we don't have equality of opportunity. And therefore, society is to be indicted for being fundamentally discriminatory and racist, sexist, homophobic, you name it. There's all the standard tropes. But um, I mean, I'm not saying that this invalidates what you said about there being sort of two approaches. I, I certainly agree. There are predators and there are humanists. Absolutely. I agree with that. Uh, although I do think that in some respects, everybody's got a little bit of both inside. Yes, of, them. of course. Of course. Because, we, you know, we are not just gatherers, we're hunters. And right. so all of us have some predatory aspect to us or we wouldn't have survived, right? We eat animals. Well, right. Not only that, we're also, uh, all of us struggle with, you know, being a, a good, compassionate person, a giving person, and being a fearful, uh, acquisitive person. I, I'm a, not sure uh, all of us do struggle with that. I think there there's that small group of predators who think being uh, be, being uh, being compassionate is for sissies. Uh, I, I do. I think that's how they see the world. They, it's basically buck up, uh, man up, and uh, and if you can't, too bad. Look, we're running out of time, and there's some personal questions I wanted to ask. Okay, uh, one, sure. one, one in particular, and I hope you don't mind uh, me getting very personal, uh, but if you do, just say you don't want to talk about it. Um, you've done a remarkable job in recent years at changing your physiology. Uh, you have uh, shed a great deal of, uh, of weight or insulation, and you've gone on a particular nutritional plan in order to accomplish that. And I'd like just for you to take a few minutes and, uh, and share uh, what you have done and, uh, and, ha and your reflections on what you have done. Sure. I'm happy to talk about much of that. I don't, I don't want to go into every single detail because some of it is a little too controversial. I, I, again, this is me like holding back, you know, this is like you asking me about my sex life. I probably won't talk about it uh, on TV, although I'll be happy to talk about it with you um, privately. Anyway, um, so uh, what happened was my dad died a slow and miserable death from complications related to diabetes. And yeah. that really got me worried. And meanwhile, simultaneously, my doctor was telling me, you know, your blood pressure is too high. You got too much belly fat. You know, you're 50 pounds overweight. And 
40 pounds overweight and your your lipids are like going in the wrong direction. And so I uh, actually somewhat serendipitously stumbled across a lecture by Peter Atia from a TED Talk from quite a number of years ago called What If We're Wrong About Diabetes? And I watched this thing and it really trans, it, it got me going down the rabbit hole of the role of carbohydrates in uh, the so-called SAD, the standard American diet, and the role of carbohydrates and potentially other industrial uh, sugars, refined uh, starches, um, and uh, maybe some other things like seed oils in the epidemic of metabolic syndrome, diabetes, diet, or so-called diabetes, which is obesity plus diabetes, metabolic syndrome, heart disease. Uh-huh. And it seems arguable that for many people, many people, and these things are driven by uh, excessive carbohydrate consumption. And I know this is controversial with you. And correspondingly... Oh, no, that isn't controversial. I, I think I think uh, carbohydrate consumption, we must be extremely wary about. Let's just leave it at that. There's a flip side to that, which suggests that, that people should eat, you know, correspondingly more of their calories from fat and protein. That's sort of obvious if you're going to restrict carbs. See, the standard to do this day, the standard medical advice is eat less, move more. Like if you're, if you're overweight, you should restrict calories and, you know, jog. It turns out for many people, that doesn't work nearly as well as restricting carbohydrates. Uh, you don't actually, for many of us, overweight types, formerly overweight types, uh, restricting carbohydrates is much better than restricting calories in terms of actually losing weight. Um, it's also much easier. Arguably. Although actually, if you restrict carbohydrates, de facto, you're going to restrict calories because... No, not if you substitute fats for carbohydrates, then you're actually going to increase calories. Oh, okay. I didn't, you didn't add and substitute. I just right, right. restrict. Yeah. Restricting carbohydrates, not for the point of restricting calories, but because arguably carbohydrates are not an essential nutrient. You actually don't, this is oversimplified, you don't need carbohydrates. Humans don't need, humans need protein and humans need fat. If you have no protein and no fat, no fat you die. If you have no carbohydrates, you just substitute, first order, you substitute calories that you can get from fat and carbohydrates. And so you get enough calories. Now, the question is how many is enough? Well, interestingly enough, it actually, this whole idea that a calorie is a calorie and it doesn't matter where it comes from, that's nonsense. It matters a great deal whether calorie comes from sugar or, you know, healthy, uh, unprocessed foods. Let's just leave it at that so we don't have to get into the meat versus vegetables debate. But, um, you know, they're both, you know, meat, eggs, you know, fresh vegetables. They're all whole natural foods. My opinion is you should never eat anything in a package and you should never eat anything that has more than two ingredients on the label, like like broccoli or steak. Like it doesn't need an ingredients list. That means it's basically safe. If the thing has a whole big list of ingredients, it's almost certainly toxic waste being marketed as food. As far as I'm concerned, most processed foods, Americans eat way too much processed food, which is sort of another more polite name for junk food. Um, and anyway, I went down this road of carb restriction and then I went into intermittent fasting, which is kind of a trendy thing where you only eat during a certain number of hours a day and then you have a big period where you don't eat. And um, and, I, and I changed, like I radically restricted my supplements that I was taking, basically took it down to vitamin D, vitamin K and, uh, and uh, potassium, lithium and um, uh, uh, magnesium and, you know, and, and metformin you take. Uh, and metformin, right. That was later. Uh, and I used finger stick glucose monitors and then continuous glucose monitor on my arm for many months. And I just learned to keep my blood sugar very low and stable. And um, 
that's just a proxy for what you really care about, which is insulin. But um, what what does most of your nutrition consist of? Meat, meat and eggs. Meat and eggs. Yeah. And what about vegetables? I view plants as me- I view meat as food and plants as medicine. Well, for example, you mentioned broccoli. Do you eat broccoli? I will if it is available. I don't usually cook it for myself, but if I'm traveling or dining with friends or you know at a restaurant, like I'm happy to eat all sorts of non-starchy vegetables. Mostly, I don't. I tend to avoid starchy ones, but green ones and and uh, yeah. Uh, but and, and ar- kind of, around the house, how often do you eat when you're I, at I, home? I eat uh, usually twice, two meals a day, or sometimes one meal a day. But um, recently, I always I wanted to try one meal a day because that's another thing that sort of some of the more fasting doctors recommend. But that was really hard for me for a long time, even when I was on this carb restriction program. But eventually, I've become quite comfortable with one meal a day, at least on a couple times a week. And um, so, so, yeah. So would you say a few times a week, you eat one meal a day, and then the other days of the week, you eat two meals a day? Right. And yes. I, try to, I try to keep and, it all between uh, noon and 8 p.m. And would you say more than 80% of the food that you eat in those one or two meals is meat? I would say that the majority of my calories come from meat and eggs and, and broth. And broth. Mm-hmm. Which, is, which is made from meat well, and, and well, organs. Well, major, majority oh. could be 51%. I threw out 80%. Yeah, yeah I, I, I actually, yeah, 80% is probably an, a good estimate. And do you monitor, you mentioned earlier in the interview that your doctor told you something about your lipids. Do you continue to monitor your lipids? Oh, of course. Yeah. No, I monitor everything I can. Okay. Sign up for all sorts of tests and they're all, they're all perfect now. They're, so, they're, so even though you're eating meat yeah. so many times a week, almost yeah. with every meal, if not every meal, your cholesterol has not gone through the roof. It's, it's staying in a normal range. Oh, it's not only not gone through the roof. My lipid profile, and I'm using that word very carefully, because total cholesterol is not predictive of cardiovascular yes. events. Right, but the, small, but, but the small, medium, and large LDL, those are predictive. The ratio of HDL to triglycerides and the ratio of total cholesterol to triglycerides or total cholesterol, these ratios are what's important. Now, you don't want the numbers to be off, the, any one of them to be like ridiculous, but right. it's the ratios that are important. And so anyway, all my ratios are great. My insulin is great. My C-reactive protein is great. My um, um, homocysteine, ApoB, everything is great now. And and this was, by the way, one of my doctors who I dumped told me I had to go on a statin. And I was like, I looked into it and I was like, no way. I'm going to continue my program. And now all my ratios are good. My weight is good. My blood pressure is good. My energy levels are good. And, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands or even now millions of people have done this. And And the thing about it, let me say one thing about it. This does not require drugs. I mean, okay, I'm on metformin a couple days a week, but that's like pennies a pill, you know? And so it does not require any expensive drugs. I don't know if you know this, uh, but statins are the most, uh, they're the most blockbuster drug that was ever invented. They've made a trillion dollars on statins. Yes. And you know something? It turns out they arguably do more harm than good. Um, And, you know, statistically, I'm not saying they don't work, don't do any good for anybody, but overall they're overprescribed and they're, and they're, and they have dangerous side effects and they're not very effective. And what they do, lowering LDL apparently isn't even causative. Like it, it appears that LDL 
is a downstream result of insults that cause heart disease. And then one of the things these insults do, inflammatory lifestyle, too much sugar, too much stress, not enough sun, downstream of these insults, LDL is produced. LDL is a natural, adaptive, beneficial response to inflammation. Normally, inflammation is, is, is acute. When you get an infection, you get inflamed, you make LDL and a bunch of other things. It's a protective response to beat off the infection. All that stuff goes back to normal. But in today's world, in today's American junk food diet, LDL is constantly elevated. But it's not the LDL that's causing the heart disease, arguably. This is somewhat controversial right now, but it's becoming less and less controversial. Yes, but you do know, of course, that most of the cardiologists in the country, I would say way beyond most, would 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 recommend against an all meat diet because they would be concerned. They may, but I, they may. But I've read a hundred times as many papers as they have because they're too busy practicing cardiology, and I have the freedom to read. And I can give them incontrovertible, top quality, peer reviewed meta analyses by the dozens that show that saturated fat, which is the thing most people wring their hands over with meat, is uh, not only not harmful for the heart or for life expand, life extent in general, but is beneficial. This is like, this has been decided now for 20 years, but there's this whole historical thing. Don't forget, most of these cardiologists went to medical school 15, 20 years ago. The information that they learned was probably old then. A lot has been learned in the last 15 years. But as you know, our medical system has a number of problems and over-reliance on pharmaceuticals, you know, doctors not being able to spend enough time with their patients or enough time studying the literature because they're swamped with, you know, work and patients, paperwork, you know, all kinds of stuff. I'm pretty, I'll debate any doctor on this. Well, I'd like you to say- And by the way, one more thing, there's a growing minority. I don't know how much longer it will be a minority that takes my position on many of these things. I would love you to send me a few of those articles about uh, the, the, the saturated fat and how it is not as, it's not creating problems. And you said they were really good studies. If you could send a few of those to me, I'd really appreciate it. I'll, I'll email them to you right after this. Okay. Uh, we're coming, we're at the end of the program, uh, Creon. It's been delightful talking to you, as it always is. Is there anything you might want to just sort of add uh, right before we close? Uh, comes oh, I've got to add that I'm, that I'm not a doctor and that was not medical advice. That's just my own personal experience and my own personal personal opinion. But, you know, talk to your doctor. But if they tell you that saturated fat is harmful, get a new doctor. Um, uh, Anyway, uh, anything else I want to add? I just, Richard, I want to thank you for being on your show once again. I really appreciated the previous time, which was a group conversation. I, you know, your friendship is one of the highlights of my life. And so thank you for everything. Well, the feeling is very mutual. And that previous show you were on is when we interviewed together, you and I, and I think uh, Dr. Nick Cozy was on with us, uh, the Duke University physicists who did the study on masks. And then we had had the Duke University guy as well as the Danish guy. And then we had the Danish group who did that massive study. That was a real, that was a very good interview. So thank you, Creon. I I love you. Uh, Great being with you. And thank you all, gentle listeners, for being with us for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Please stay with us. I hope you'll go to our med, our website, uh, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, and uh, look at some of the archives. Subscribe to the program. We are totally listener-supported, so we certainly need your help. And take a look at my recent book, published a couple of weeks ago, Psychedelic Wisdom. It contains 1,500 years 
this approximately of stories of prominent people who have been engaging sub rosa in psychedelic self-experimentation for many decades. Most of the people in the book are in their 70s, 80s, and one in their 90s. So until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.